attitudes are before we start just unpacking them, is I think about when I was in the Army, one of the go-to things you would do in your downtime in garrison or deployed is you'd go to the gym. And we were fortunate that we had gyms that had good workout equipment, you know? And sometimes you'd get in one of these machines, you're not entirely sure what you're doing, you just kind of start moving things around. Somebody feels it. So, like, you start moving these things around, and then you kind of like, ah, this isn't really doing it for me. I'm going to, uh, you know, forget that machine. I'm going to do something else. It's not the machine's fault, right? It's not the machine's fault. Our, our own un- misunderstanding of what to do with the equipment means it doesn't do what you want it to do, and that's the Beatitudes, okay? So, uh, one of my pastor friends uh, has a really helpful description to think of the Beatitudes as a whole. We're only going to look at two of them this morning, of course, but... What we should do with the Beatitudes is not so different from what you do when you observe a fine masterpiece of art. When you look at a fine work of art, the chief things to do are to look at it, to observe it, to marvel at it, to marvel at the gifts of the one who made the art. What you're not supposed to do is to immediately try to like take a mental snapshot and then go do your stick figure version of imitation. That's not what we're supposed to do with the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are not a checklist for us to punch to be a good Christian, but rather they are a description of what God has done in the, in the heart of a Christian. All right, so the world does not bless people for showing these qualities, but God does because he has worked them into his people. So they act like a mirror, and they challenge us to recognize how far we are from living this way as well. And they challenge us to honestly reflect on how we exhibit these qualities ourselves. And believers, those who are trusting in Jesus as their Savior, they see areas of greater and lesser measure of these qualities in their lives, but they will see them. And believers respond with, uh, they respond with a mix of hopefulness when they hear the Beatitudes and what God has done, but they also respond with the sense of how much we fail to exhibit these qualities, how much work there is still yet to happen in our hearts. So our awareness of our failures is not where God draws us in in order to condemn us, but rather he draws us closer that he would shape us more and more into the image of Christ. That is what he's doing. So non-believers... And believers are like, we're all going to be pointed to Jesus Christ as the greatest example of fulfilling the Beatitudes. So let's go now to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and reflect on his words and be challenged by him again, looking at the pure in heart and the peacemakers. Now, your text on the screen is only going to be verses 8 and 9, but I'm actually going to read all of them. I'm going to start in Matthew 5, verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 12, but we're really going to emphasize 8 and 9 this morning, okay? So if you have a paper Bible or another Bible of choice and you want to follow along, I'm going to start in Matthew 3. I'm going to read through verse uh, Matthew 5, verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 12, and then I'll pray that God would help us to understand and apply what is in his word for us, okay? So listen carefully. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to him. Let me pray, and then we'll get into it a little bit more. Our Father in heaven, we come to you knowing our deep need only because you've revealed it to us. So Lord, for those in here who maybe don't know you, don't understand what this church thing is about, why we would bother reading this ancient book, why we would talk about this religion that's been around for so long, don't understand the relevance of it, Lord, I pray that today you would prick consciences and soften hearts to see you for who you are. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us this text. Thank you for sending your son to preach this sermon so that we would benefit from it so many years later. Holy Spirit, thank you that you dwell within us, that you are reconciling all things together. You are bringing our heart back to yours. Already and not yet, you have done this work in those who are trusting in Jesus. And we praise you for it this morning. So God, this morning I ask that you would use me as your instrument. I pray that I would get out of the way of the text where I need to get out of the way. And I pray that the preaching of your word would be a seed that falls into good soil, bearing fruit in its season. So Lord, help me now to do these things, that Jesus would get all the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So the classic 1989 movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, is going to be helpful this morning. All right. So in that movie... Indiana is in a race against the Nazis to find the Holy Grail, the mythical object that if you drank from it, you'd have eternal life. Never mind this believing in Jesus stuff, just drink from the cup. All right, we'll leave that alone for now. So what the, the thing is, is that with this, with this Grail, as they're chasing after it, is that as they find clues as to where it is, they also find out that there's all kinds of barriers. You can't just walk right in. You, there's tests, and it's dangerous, and there's, there's peril involved with getting to the Grail. All right? So... In, this, in the climax of the movie, spoilers, it's 1989, sorry if you haven't seen it. Um, at the end of the movie, there is this, uh, there's like these footmen, uh, you know, kind of working with the Nazis, and they're being sent in through this dark, mysterious tunnel to where the grail is beyond, and what's happening is they're dying as they're going in there. And, but Indy's outside, he's got a gun to him, and he doesn't know exactly what's happening. So uh, his turn comes. Another dude just walked in and died, so now the Nazis point the gun at Indy, and they're like, you're next, right? So he goes, and he's walking into the tunnel, and he's racking his brain the whole time he's walking into the tunnel, trying to remember the words of his father, the clues that his dad had given him to, to get through these tests, and he's mumbling under his, under his breath the words, only the penitent man may pass, only, only the penitent man may pass, kneel! And he kneels, and he, these blades pass around him, and he gets through, and he continues his journey. He continues on toward the Holy Grail. So, we don't appreciate, in our world today, that we can approach God the way that he calls us to. We think that approaching God is a little bit more like it's, it's as easy as walking into Walmart to pick up a bag of groceries or something. But really approaching God is something that God says you must have a healthy fear of the Lord. It's not something that we can just walk in like it's no big deal into the presence of God. Only the pure get to see God. Only the pure. And since Adam and Eve sinned, 
As we know back in Genesis 3, God has put distance between himself and us on account of our sin in order to preserve us from his wrath. Worse, mankind in our corrupted and fallen state is alienated from God in such a way that we are powerless to do anything of it on our own power. Like we can't fix it. So here's, the, here's like the big problem that we're addressing this morning in this sermon. Is that apart from Christ, each and every one of us is alienated from God. That is what the scriptures say our status is. And because we're alienated from God, nothing else is right. It's like the old song, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Except it's not when she's gone, it's when God is far off. At the foundation of all the sins we commit is this broken relationship between us and God. God's standard for keeping his law is not, eh, good enough. It's pass-fail, and it's perfection. So if even today you made a commitment in your heart and you were somehow able to carry it out that you're not going to sin anymore, you've already run up such a debt that you're, you're in deep trouble because there's no payment that's going to fit that you can render. What we do is we compare ourselves to others. And we make ourselves feel better when they're doing worse than us. And further on in this sermon in Matthew 5, Jesus shows the hopelessness of, of trusting in our own works through the examples of just anger and lust. Just two, two of those, right? In uh, 521, he says that if you're angry with someone, it's as if you've murdered them before God. Which, by the way, if you're an Old Testament person, that's a capital offense. And then he goes on to 527 and following... He says, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you're guilty of committing adultery, which also is a capital offense, according to the Old Testament law. So another pastor has said it this way, and this is strong medicine. And if this offends you, uh, I don't mean it to be offensive for offensiveness sake. I want to put the stakes where I believe the, the scripture puts them. That on our best days of trying to keep God's law apart from being united to Christ, we are much closer to Adolf Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ. That's a stiff drink. God's standard is perfection. And our alienation from God means that outside of Christ, we're at war with God. And that war can be hot or cold war, right? Many in the church are really good at cold war. Because we know that it's socially unacceptable to say what we're really thinking about our relationship with God. We don't feel like it's safe to be honest that we're mad at God about the things that he is doing or not doing in our world and in our lives. So we're in cold war, some of us, in, maybe even in this room. And then there's hot war, right, which is the one that's really easy to point out. It's the person who is overtly a hater of God and against the things of God, right? But regardless, apart from Christ, we're in some degree or mix of war with God. Apart from Christ, God and man are enemies. You don't believe me? Well, we'll get to the scriptures about what it says about that later. Because we're alienated with God, we're alienated and at war with God apart from Christ, we're also, by nature, alienated and at war with each other. And this is the root of why we are still praying for things like peace in Ukraine and watching with, like, gritted teeth and wincing as we watch, like, the aftermath of, like, January 6th on the news, Right? More commonly to us, we dread going to certain families' houses at the holidays because we don't want to go through that again. We know that even in our families, we're at war with each other. And yet, believer and non-believer alike, 
We long for peace. So a big question I want to ask as we look at this text this morning is this, how are we supposed to pursue peace with God and our neighbor? It's kind of the underlying question of everything I'm getting at this morning. And your outline is in the bulletin. If you have a bulletin, you have my outline there. But the big points are that we're impure in heart and we're in conflict with God and our neighbors. We're sometimes in a place to mediate. But Christ cleanses us and makes peace with us. So he'd make us peacemakers. So if like, my, if like I kind of, like you kind of go to your, your nothing box while I'm talking, you kind of zone out. Here's your cheater's notes of where everything is going today. The one sentence summary, okay? All right, because Christ reconciles us to God, we must hope in him alone for peace with God and with our neighbors. That's where everything's going this morning, all right? So, big question. What's the big deal about purity? What's the big deal about purity? If you remember your Old Testament, you'll know that purity is a big deal amongst the worship of God and his people. There were unclean foods, unclean practices, unclean animals. Even certain jobs could make you unclean and impure. And these are ritual impurities. And they would exclude you, if you had them, from gathering with God's people in worship. So priests encountered all kinds of things over the course of their life that would make them impure. And they had to learn uh, the, the law of how to be purified according to these impurities they encountered. So they could continue to minister in keeping with God's law. And it's difficult for us to identify with these ceremonial laws, but they have a pretty clear lesson to communicate that you don't have to have a, a degree in biblical studies to understand. God cannot be in the presence of impurity. This lesson helped the Old Testament people of God understand that being in the presence of God is not a casual thing. It's a big deal. Think of the layers of the tabernacle, if you know your Old Testament as well. The innermost layer of the tabernacle behind three layers was the Holy of Holies. And that is where the presence of the Lord would manifest. And only the high priest could go in there once a year after he had done all kinds of things to purify himself according to the law. Think of it this way. If you wanted to go visit the king of England, if you wanted to go have an office call with President Biden, you are not just going to walk up into that office. You have to go through these barriers because that's kind of the idea of God is king. He's a king. And so to have access to him, he says that there are some things that have to be so in order to have access to him. Remember Moses, when he asked to see the Lord, and the Lord would not let him see him face to face when he asked in Exodus 33, but only allowed Moses to see God as he passed by. And then we think of the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where when Isaiah has this vision of being in the presence of God, his response is not, oh, cool. It's, woe is me. I'm going to die. Why? For I am lost, I have a man of, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. It's likely that Jesus is referring to Psalm 24 here in Matthew, where we're looking at these two, uh, these two beatitudes today. He said, in, uh, in, in Psalm 24, it said that the one who will ascend into the presence of the Lord is the one with clean hands, and a pure heart. It's in verse 4. Some of you remember the story in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus and Peter are in the boat. Jesus tells them to put down the nets. 
and they get loads and loads of fish. And Peter realizes he's in the presence of God, and his response is also not, oh, cool. His response is, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter knew that impurity could not be in the presence of God. The purity God requires is what we lack, apart from Christ's intervention on our behalf, as the mediator between us and God. So let's talk about the idea of the New Testament thought behind the heart versus the way that we think about the heart today, right? So in our culture, the heart is the seat of our emotions. That's the way we talk about it, right? Think about the pop songs of our, day, of, of, of our, of our culture, right? Um, listen to your heart when he's calling for you. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. I don't know where you're going and I don't know why, but listen to your heart before you tell him goodbye, right? Once upon a time, I was falling in love. Now I'm only falling apart. There's nothing I can do. Total eclipse of the heart, yes. Near, far, wherever you are, I believe that the heart does go on. And once more you open the door and you're here in my heart and my heart will go on. Yes. So that's our culture's idea of the heart, but the New Testament thought it has a Greek word that's really fun to say because the idea of the emotions in the New Testament thought was in the guts, the splachna. It's just kind of fun to say. It sounds like splat, kind of gross, right? But that's where the emotions were in the New Testament thought is that it's the splachna, the guts, okay? So that's what's going on there. And Jesus, in verse 8, uses the Greek word cardia, where we get cardiac medicine, cardiac arrest, etc., and the idea of cardia in New Testament thought is more than just an emotional response. The heart is where the inner life disposition toward the things of God, feeling and thinking, and power of the will are all captured in the New Testament idea of heart. Martin Luther wrote, this is in your quotes in your bulletin, what is meant by a pure heart is this, a heart that is watching and pondering what God says, and replacing its own ideas with the Word of God. My ideas, your ideas, about what God requires of us are not as important as what God has revealed in the Scriptures. So our sin makes us impure, and it makes us unable to be in the presence of God, unable to see God, but we see in the Beatitudes, God pronounces blessing on the pure in heart, for they shall see God because of what Christ has done to purify them. Now that we see how purity matters to God, what does this have to do with peacemaking? When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, we might wonder, well, who is against whom? A regular parenting occurrence in my house, and I'm sure in some of yours as well, is you walk into a room because they're shouting, and you say, what is going on in here? Because we're looking for why there isn't peace, and we want to restore it. So let's ask the same thing as we consider the lack of peace in our own lives today in the world. Here's a recap of where things stand according to God in the scriptures, okay? God made all things, as the song said, and he called them good, right? He made all things and called them good. And then Adam and Eve don't just fall, but they rebel against God as their father and king. And then all things are now corrupted by the curse that God pronounces upon Adam and Eve and the serpent and the earth itself because of the sin of Adam and Eve. 
And so they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden because now God has to deal with this impurity that is present in his children. And to protect them, he sends them away from his presence. And it's until we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and his completed work of, of salvation, until we're reconciled, our status is enemies. We're in conflict with, we're at war with God. And Romans 5, verses 8 through 10 says this, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore you have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Even the redeemed groan under his kingship when we don't understand him. We cry out with the Psalms, How long, O Lord? In our times of suffering, we sin against God and neighbor, and time and time again we find ourselves praying like David in the Psalms, Wash me whiter than snow, and restore to me the joy of my salvation because we lose sight of it. In a lesser and greater sense, depending on your relationship with God or lack of it, we all experience being in conflict with God. But the difference for the believer is this. The believer always submits again to the goodness of God because of Jesus Christ. So we're in conflict with our neighbors. How many ways are we in conflict with our neighbors? Of course, politically, we see international conflict like Russia and Ukraine. We see, in, we see national conflict of people doing violence at the seat of our nation's capital. We see China's oppressive treatment of Christians and leveling of churches. Would you like to make new enemies? Discuss COVID-19 policy or transgender issues in mixed companies. See how that goes for you, right? Um, somebody's going to get heated. We think about even in our own communities with different faiths, sometimes within one city, you can have churches that are frustrated with each other, and there's gamesmanship going on. When I was in Georgia, there was a cult that was moving into town from South America, and people were very concerned about that. So we're in conflict with other faiths. Then you have your workplace. Some of you have had bad bosses. I had a bad boss once upon a time who I avoided like he was the plague toward the end of my time, right? Some of you have bad coworkers who are lazy or ill-behaved, and you hate cleaning up their messes. Some of you have teachers who are too demanding or just not very good at teaching, and you can't stand to, uh, to be learning from them, but you're stuck with them because you don't have a choice as to which teachers you get. Sometimes you're in conflict with other students, right? Especially in the younger ages, you have things like bullying and kids just generally being punks to each other. There's meanness and petty, pettiness that happens. And then we have, of course, our families. Families fight sometimes. I didn't get along with my grown sisters who were three and five years older than me when I was growing up until I was about 16 years old. My poor parents, right? We were always giving each other grief and them grief about something. And I wish I could tell you that we never experienced fighting in my house, but that would be a lie. So that is something that we all know. But also, we are caught in between warring parties. Sometimes we're stuck in the middle. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, right? So do we seek to avoid or do we seek to mediate when we can? 
I think we have at least three options. There's probably more, but this is just because I only got so much time to talk. One option is sinful avoidance, right? Sinful avoidance is when we just look away. And it's done from a privileged position of not having to address the problem for ourselves. And so we allow our neighbors to suffer at the hands of another by refusing to engage. I get that there are proverbs in the Bible that tell us not to take a passing dog by the ears. So there's wisdom that has to happen there about like, do you step into everybody's stuff just because it's happening? Not necessarily, don't hear what I'm not saying. But we who are trusting in Christ have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And when we have that internal tug to enter in and we ignore it, that's not good. That's sinful avoidance, right? We treat peace as though it is the absence of tension, right? But Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights giant, says true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. So do we act for the sake of justice for the poor and the weak? Not just change our, you know, social media handle. You know, I mean, like the one that I, I'm, you know, one that I see all the time is like the Ukraine flag and everybody's like name tag, which is great. I'm all for that. But is that it? Right? Is that, we did it. I've, I've, I've been a social justice warrior. I've changed my profile picture. Right? Is that where we limit ourselves? Are we too busy chasing the American dream to really engage with the injustice in our communities and in the world. Another option is sinful favoritism. There's avoidance, but there's also favoritism, which is when we gang up on one side, we show partiality and direct conflict with the scriptures, like the book of James tells us not to do, and instead of seeking lasting peace between two parties, we just try to shut one up so the problem will at least go away so I don't have to deal with it. We just, give, we just want the squeaky wheel to be quiet long enough so that I can have a moment's peace. There's a lot more to say about all these. And then there's another option, which I think we're called to from the scriptures, I believe we're called to, which is sanctified mediation. This is what Jesus shows us as he is reconciling all things to himself through his blood on the cross. Sanctified mediation. It is costly, but it is vital. And it's what we're called to. So in conflict, both in turning a blind eye to it and sinfully entering into it, we are called to examine ourselves to see who we are sons of, right? Turning a blind eye... Well, let's think about Ezekiel's prophecy that reveals the heart of God towards those whom he has called into the mission in the world. And those who, he's called, who God has called into the mission in the world today is not just the missionaries and, and people at RUF and elsewhere, but it's the church. It's the church. And he says in Ezekiel 33, verses 7 through 9, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. God will hold us responsible, not only for the actions we take, but for the actions we refuse to take. Do you feel the weight of this? I sure do. Ezekiel was charged with being a mediator between God and the wicked. Peacemaking for him was to point the wicked to the way of righteousness before it was too late. And the beatitude, 
calls peacemakers sons of God. Romans 8.23 captures the longing believers have when we hear that we will be called sons of God. It says there, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons or daughters. Redemption of our bodies. By the work of Christ, who has made peace between God and man by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20, God makes us peacemakers. And he also becomes, Jesus Christ becomes your spiritual big brother. Like that might be weird for you to think about, but that's the picture the scripture gives you by adoption. You are adopted into the royal family of the universe, and Jesus Christ is legally, truly your big brother. And he's like the photo negative of the big brother in the, in the prodigal son story. You remember the big brother? The, the young brother goes off and lives his life wild, and he does crazy things, and he comes back, and the big brother in the prodigal son story rages against the kindness of his father toward his younger brother. Jesus does the total opposite for you and me. When we return to our Father, to our senses, as we repent from our sin, He delights in you. Your big brother delights in you. He doesn't rage against you because you should be ashamed of yourself. That's who Jesus is. He's your brother. This is good news. The alternative to being a son of God is nothing good, of course. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So who's in conflict with who? We're at war with God, apart from Christ, and also with our neighbors. Sometimes we're in a position to mediate between our neighbors. And we see that the pure in heart are blessed, and they will see God. But purity is not cheap. We also see that peacemakers are blessed too, and that they will be called sons of God. But peacemaking is not a simple thing. So where's the hope? Where's the hope? Christ plays the critical role in making us people of whom it can be said, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus himself must be the one to cleanse us from all impurity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe it? That makes the pure, what makes the pure in heart so is that they recognize that their purity is only on account of Christ's record counted to us. It's not native to us. It is alien to us. And what that does is it create, God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and makes us humble and utterly dependent on him. In regard to peacemaking, we can only be peacemakers in the sense that God calls us to it if we recognize that God has made peace with us through his only begotten son. Romans 5.8 says, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So by his blood on the cross, he has made atonement for the sins of all who believe. Divine justice is paid in full. The work that was required for you to be unalienated from God, to die. it is finished. 
If you are in Christ, the war between you and God is over. The old you who was at war with God has been violently crucified and put to death with Christ. And God's justice is satisfied. Praise be to Christ. God has been a peacemaker to you. This peace is not just the absence of conflict. It is the Hebrew concept of shalom. It's this 360 degree peace in every direction of life. It's justice, it's prosperity, it's flourishing, and that is the result of true peacemaking. And too often, we're satisfied when the squeaky wheel has been shut up. God's blessing on peace, peacemakers is not for those who put band-aids on massively infected, infected wounds. It is for the ones who are united to Christ, and in that union, they do that which is costly and risky to reconcile enemies. All of this is leading to this point. God purifies us, and he makes peace with us so that we will become peacemakers ourselves. God's replicating the work even through you and me, even on a smaller scale. In your quotes, you have a quote from Henry Nouwen. He said that no one can be a Christian without being a peacemaker. So let me land the plane here quickly, as quickly as I can. The chief application for you is like one, but I'll spell it out because it might sound too simple. The chief application is run to Jesus. Like, that's it. I mean, everything else I say is going to be in support of that one sentence. Run to Jesus. Okay? Delight in what Jesus has done for us. If you don't know him yet, today is the day to put your faith in him. Today is the day to pray the prayer that God would show himself to you. If you can't walk, you need to know that you can't wash yourself from what makes you impure before God. You can't make peace with God on your own. Jesus has done this for you at the cost of his own life. Believe in him. You will see God. Do you believe it? You will be called a son of God, a daughter of God. If you believe in him, he has washed you clean from all your impurities and counts his righteousness as your own and takes the punishment due for all of your sins. Take joy in the salvation of Christ. Let that joy carry you even in the midst of sorrows of this world. You will see God. You will be called a son, a daughter of God. Take the impurities of your heart and bring them to him. He will wash you whiter than snow. As an aid in diagnostic, read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and take stock of where you stand before the God. Don't despair. Mourn your sin, but also rest that there is more mercy and grace in Christ than there is sin in you. One of the old cliche things to say, but it's so true, is for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at the mercy and grace of Christ. Confess a rebellious spirit if you have it. Get it out there. Don't pretend that you're better off than you are for some sort of short-term social payout. Get real. Recognize that you have failed to be a peacemaker where you have. Whether that's at home, whether that's at work, whether that's at school. God blesses us in order that we may be a blessing. That's the promise to Abraham. So go forth and advocate for peace for someone who's weaker than you. Seek the spiritual and physical welfare of the poor and needy. A commentator says, if you've made peace with God, you can go out and make peace with everybody else. So recognize that we're one in Christ, male and female, slave and free, so economically, Jew and Gentile, so ethnically. Submit to one another, considering others greater than yourselves, and love your enemies with the hope that one day you will have no enemies. Make peace with your neighbors. 
So Indiana Jones had to remember his father's words to in, order, in order to get to the end of his quest to reach the grail, and we too must remember the words of our spiritual big, big brother, Jesus Christ, the words of our Father, the Lord in heaven, if we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here's the big difference. Indiana Jones had to pass a whole bunch of tests. You ready for the good news? You don't have to pass a bunch of tests because Jesus already passed every single one of them for you. This is incredibly good news. He gave his own blood, his own life, and suffered so that we could have peace with God and so that we would be pure. So remember, we are impure in heart apart from Christ. We are in conflict with God and with our neighbors apart from Christ. Or we're positioned to be a mediator, maybe. But also, Christ cleanses us and makes peace with us to make us peacemakers. So because Christ reconciles us to God, we must hope in him alone for peace with God and with our neighbors. By faith in Christ, you will see God, and you will be called sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for the interaction you had with the man whose daughter was sick. And when he prayed, Lord, if you would heal my daughter. And you said, if all things are possible, if you believe. And the man responds, not with this slam dunk statement of, of unflinching belief in Jesus, but he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm so grateful for that, for that response, Lord, because I feel like that's where so many of us spend a lot of our time. I believe, help my unbelief. And Lord, I pray that for those who feel that this morning, that you would answer their belief and that you would help their unbelief and draw them nearer to yourself, that they would delight in being in the spiritual family of God if they already are there, and that if they are not already in the spiritual family of God, that they would long to know it and they would pray to understand it today. So God, would you bless us now as we continue to worship you through the rest of this worship service? And Lord, would you help us to run to you as we live out these beatitudes, trusting you to be doing this work in us and not trusting in our own striving. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.